Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have two good martinis for you today, as well as one crazy and a champagne toast, as we call it here on the Three Martini Lunch, which we'll get to at the conclusion of today's podcast. And Jim, let's start with the first good martini. Yesterday, uh, we weren't quite sure we would get this good martini. And if we didn't get it, Friday was going to get real ugly in this country with the shutdown of critical uh, rail lines and the critical shipments that are um, dependent on those rail lines. Well, apparently after marathon negotiations, the railroad companies and the railroad workers and their unions uh, came to a deal. Uh, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh with the early morning statement and then uh, Joe Biden later this morning uh, making it official from the Rose Garden. As you might guess, I am very pleased (laughs) to announce a tentative labor agreement between that has been reached between the railroad workers and the railway companies. This agreement is a big win for America. So, Jim, we don't know the details yet. It'll be interesting to see them. Remember that the unions were holding out from agreeing to terms that the Biden administration had actually uh, suggested a number of months ago. So it's a question of whether the Biden administration browbeat the companies to accepting even more demands in favor of the unions or whether the unions finally got on board for the most part. So whatever's going to happen here, uh, it's definitely a good thing that our economy is not going to take several major gut punches here due to even a small or short work stoppage. Yeah. And one of the things that's worth noting is that um, the effects of the strike started this week, even though the you know strike has thankfully been averted. Earlier this week, the rail line started saying, look, we're not going to transport anything that could be dangerous because we don't want it you know, being stuck between destinations when the strike kicks in. So this meant chlorine, uh, which is often used for, you know, purifying drinking water, um, you know, fertilizers, obviously kind of stuff that, you know, end up being used to make bombs. Nobody wanted this stuff sitting in the middle of nowhere with nobody, no staff around. So they decided, okay, we're just not going to ship it. Um, the cup at noon yesterday, two of the biggest ones said, look, we're not taking new intermodal uh, shipments, we're, we're going to wait. Uh, you probably heard about the Amtrak's uh, routes getting canceled. And if they're adopting the deal as of, you know, five or six this morning, the plan was for crop shipments to stop today. So we really came up to the precipice. I'm really glad that there's an 11th hour deal. Um, this would have been uh, all of our past supply chain issues and empty shelves issues on steroids. So indisputably, it is really good. If you feel like, ah, well, you know, Biden helped, you know, just handed off a victory to the unions or something like that, I'd urge you to read today's Morning Joel because I have a reader who used to work in the railroad industry and his job still requires him to stay in touch and talk to people who are still in the industry. He's got some criticism for the unions, but he's also sympathetic to the current circumstances of railroad workers. They're basically the labor shortage you see in a whole lot of fields 
has been present in the railroad and uh, freight industry for a long time, and it's been getting worse year by year. And one of the real big sticking points in this was an extra day off because apparently rail workers have to be on call, if not 24, well, 24 seven and for really long stretches. Right? Somebody was saying that they really only get one day a month in which they're not on call. You don't always get a lot of warning about when they need you in. Your shift could be 12 hours. You could be you know, traveling several days on that train. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard work and it's not predictable life. And so that wears on people. Now, what this guy who's been in the industry pointed out, though, is that right now the number of jobs in any particular location is set by the union. So if the company hires 20 guys and trains them, but the, no, no pun intended, you know, uh, prepares them to do the job, but the union says, well, we only really need 15 guys and unions are never eager to bring in new guys, it seems. Uh, then those other five guys have to find a job somewhere else. And of course, all jobs are done by seniority. So if somebody who's more senior than you shows up and you don't have a lot of seniority, you get bumped and you have to find another job somewhere else. As you can see, this prior, this makes it hard to attract young workers. This makes it hard to get people into. Now, it's very easy to see why people get through and have a certain number of years of experience stick around. Uh, it can be very reliable work. It can be, you know, good and valued work. Oh, by the way, yesterday's proposal involved a 24% raise, which is, you know, pretty darn good by most, uh, yeah. uh, by most measuring sticks. Um, but the, what the guy, my reader was saying is that the union is complaining that there's not enough workers, they're short-staffed, nobody can get break time. And they're like, okay, but part of the problem is that you guys make it so hard to get people into the door. And you make their first couple of years some of the roughest and most difficult ones. So you're part of the problem of why we can't staff up and have... Uh, enough people to cover when guys want to go on vacation or take a break or something like that. So, yeah, on the one hand, as he summarized, it's a, look, management probably needs to make more than a few concessions to labor. But someone in the labor camp needs to realize they can't spend decades making it nearly impossible to bring in new blood and then blame management for the fact there's nobody around to give them time off. As he puts it, the laws of supply and demand are vicious mistresses and they don't like being broken. I suspect the overwhelming majority of coverage will not get into this you know but one of the things that i try to do and i think we try to do on this podcast is to give you a fuller picture of what is actually being experienced and what the real hang-ups are instead of you know this guy's the good guy and that side's the bad guys yeah well said well said and uh i think everybody's breathing a sigh of relief right now uh two quick follow-ups on this jim one good and one not so good uh first of all i think this is helpful just to have this story, I'm glad it got averted and, and I wish it hadn't gotten this close to the brink of, of uh, an economic calamity. But it reminds me of something my uh, wonderful late father uh, told me on a number of occasions. You know, one time we're in the in the store and we had our little list and one of the things on the list was salt. So I grabbed that thing of salt and I'm like, man, salt's really cheap. And he's like, yeah, do you know why? And so he went on to explain, you know, the cost that you pay for in the store is related to all the costs that it takes to put it together. And he's like, and there's also the fact that all this stuff just happens to be in the store in just the right amount. So there's enough for everybody who wants it, but it's not a glut of, uh, of product on the shelf. And he's like, the vast majority of the public has no idea why things cost what they do and mm. how they get there. Uh, so this is a little bit of a good lesson on uh, how the economy works and how products get from place to place. Yeah, I also, I've heard some, a, a curious argument, one that seems somewhat convincing to me, that look, we, we've heard about the rise of what they call just-in-time, you know, supply management shipment and supply chain philosophy, that companies don't like having a whole lot of their products sitting around in back rooms or warehouses or something like that. And they really want to see 
uh, things get, you know, they have just enough there, you know, when they need it. And as, as things get sold, they order the new ones, et cetera. First of all, it leaves you much less margin for error. And apparently, I guess in terms of the scheduling, it just makes everything more challenging and it's tougher for workers. And that's why I talked about the unpredictability of the schedule and not really knowing where you're going to need to go and when for, for long stretches. It, that, you know, this, this wears on people. Like I was saying, this is a really tough, um, tough, you know, a, 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 you know, not an easy way to make a living. And I kind of wonder if some of this was this forgetting the human factor in trying to put some sort of perfect schedule to get everything just where it needs, just at the right time and minimize time the products are sitting around. So, yeah, an angle I want to explore a little bit more, um, but we'll just something to keep in mind as you see people saying the work schedules have become utterly unmanageable for most human beings. Well, yeah, that's a problem to deal with as well. But of course, Jim, uh, Joe Biden can't just take the W here. He's got to gaslight the American people again about inflation. Here are part of his comments from Thursday morning. With unemployment still near record lows and signs of progress and lowering costs, this agreement allows us to continue to rebuild a better America. So uh, despite uh, the best evidence that we explained very well uh, just a couple of days ago, he keeps telling us that costs are coming down. Costs are not coming down. Compared to one year ago, they might be coming down slightly compared to how horrible it was a month or two ago. But uh, overall, from where we were when we started uh, this administration, they're not coming down. They're getting worse, especially with key staples like food. Yeah, I was going to say that, uh, as I mentioned, the, you know, the Biden team has this bad habit of spiking the football the moment they see a little bit of good news. I think the uh, big celebration of uh, earlier this week as the stock market was crashing was a good example. Um, it's just a bad situation where, you know, this administration is so desperate to have good news that the moment it happens, they put a spotlight on it and they talk about how great things are going on. I don't think this helps them, by the way. And I also feel like, you know, maybe this is my inner Jets fan talking. But every time you talk about how great things are going, you're tempting fate for, you know, things to change. And in the economy, it's always complicated. The, I, it, I also figure this is some degree of um, Jedi mind tricking, <laughs> you know, gaslighting, trying to convince people that things are do, going much better than they are. And I just don't think at this, you know, if, if, if people ever had that kind of faith in Joe Biden, he, you know, they lost it a long time ago. All right. Well, we'll take uh, we'll take that mostly good martini and now uh, go to our wonderful sponsor for the day. And that is Fast Growing Trees. Look, uh, we have fantastic trees right here in my house. I'm looking at the lemon tree, looking great. The Monstera plant has grown so much, really fast growing, uh, that my wife thinks it's time for a new pot. And the, uh, the fig tree over there in the window is doing fantastic as well. So whether you're looking for foliage indoors or outdoors, you'll love fastgrowingtrees.com. You don't have to drive around to nurseries and big gardening centers because fast growing trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped to your door within one or two days. Whether you're looking to add some privacy or you want some shade in your backyard or you just want some natural beauty around your home, fast growing trees has in-house experts who are ready to help you make the right selection with growing and care and they are available 24 seven. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash martini and you'll get 15% off your entire order right now through October 15th. Get 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash martini. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini now. And it's weird enough that the Biden administration was part of a good martini. Now Tom Friedman of the New York Times is part of a good martini. He's still off on some significant things here, but his larger point 
uh, I think is is worth discussing here. Uh, he's basically chiding the left and in an utterly weak way, the right, uh, for not doing more to produce domestic energy on a couple of fronts. First of all, he uh, wants to uh, use it to confront Putin. He says, I can't repeat this enough. U.S. energy policy today has to be the arsenal of democracy to defeat Petro-Putinism in Europe by providing desperately needed oil and gas to our allies at reasonable prices so that Putin cannot blackmail them. It has to be the engine of economic growth that provides the cleanest and most affordable fossil fuel energy as we transition to a low-carbon economy. And it has to be the vanguard for scaling renewables to get the world to that low-carbon future as fast as we can. Uh, he then uh, says that uh, Democrats are uh, potentially more to blame, moral preening progressives who want an overnight immaculate green revolution, or Jim, it could be the Republicans who didn't go along with uh, Joe Manchin's and Joe Biden's latest bill. Could, could be either one. Could be either one that's the problem. Uh, but he also points out that fossil fuels, oil, gas, and coal still accounted for 82% of total world primary energy use last year, which is required for things like heating, transportation, and electricity generation, down only three percentage points in five years. In America alone, last year, about 61% of electricity generation was from fossil fuels. So he at least sees that this race to no fossil fuels in a decade is insane. I think he's going to learn over time that even in the long haul, you can't do it to the extent that fossil fuels can. It's never going to be as cheap that way. So I think it's still fool's gold that they're chasing, but at least he's providing somewhat of a reality check to the left here. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, you know, in terms of influence, we may not listen to Tom Friedman, but <laughs> I think the Democratic officials... When he writes something like this, they sit up and take notice. Uh, we already saw that uh, vote out in California where Gavin Newsom, you know, managed to persuade them to keep a nuclear power plant open for until 2030. And for a little while, there was some objection from the Greens and some surprisingly, you know, arguments calling them fairy dust solutions and stuff. And they came around. Uh, I think this is, you know, you're starting to see the ground move underneath the feet of the Democratic Party and the Greens. The section of uh, Friedman's column that I like the most, where he says, look, the most important factor for quickly expanding our exploitation of oil, gas, solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, or nuclear, by the way, that's just about all of them, right, is giving the companies that pursue them and the banks that fund them the regulatory certainty that if they invest billions, the government will help them to quickly build the transmission lines and pipelines to get their energy to market. Greens love solar panels, but hate transmission lines. Good luck saving the planet with that approach. And it's, you know, I, that, that's a very you know, succinct way of putting it. That in the end, if you want to have these kinds of, whether it's whatever kind of energy you want to make, you got to get it to the market. And he points out that, um, look, where you want to have your, your clean power, your windmills, your solar and stuff like that, you generally need a desert or you generally need a plain where people don't live. So, so once you've got the energy, you got to get it to people. And if the greens are like, no, 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 you can't build those power lines there. It ruins the, the landscape. It's a, well, then, you know, how, you know, you can't put it in a battery in a truck and drive it over. How do you want to get it there? And it's just this utter unrealism there. So it is good to see Friedman calling them out. I think you're starting to see an incremental, but maybe accelerating change in democratic thinking on this. Let's just hope that it continues to accelerate. Jim, I have heard this argument. The more I think about it, the more I think it has credibility. I don't know if I want to give it the entire credit, but um, the first thing Biden did coming in 
was scrap a bunch of different Trump policies, a lot of them dealing with energy, Keystone Pipeline being among them. But as we just described in recent days, uh, the amount of uh, U.S. land uh, being leased for drilling is a micro fraction of what it was under every recent administration. So when you're cutting off your supply like that, prices go up. And so for over a year, that was happening, led by the Biden administration, making the price of oil a lot higher than it was a year earlier. And that allowed Putin to bankroll this military venture, which has turned into a pending disaster for him, but at least gave him the confidence that he could pay for this thing. Uh, and while that certainly wasn't Biden's goal, it was the unintended consequence of his uh, choking out American energy production. How much I, I was going to say, I always see, you know, whenever I say, ah, oh, what an incompetent decision on the part of the Biden administration, I'll get people who say, Jim, you're being naive. This is all deliberate. And I don't know if that's the case. I suppose this is where I should heed the recommendation of uh, Exurban John, ex John, the man with no lower half of his face on Twitter, where he always <laughs> says, embrace the healing power of and. <laughs> both. Yes, yes, no doubt about it. But uh, there's no question that, that Putin got a lot richer uh, leading up to uh, the invasion. So we will see where it goes from here. All right, one more bit of good news, Andy, and that is the fantastic deals you can find at 4 slash martini, including their signature offer right now, a free solar panel with the purchase of the Patriot Power Generator 2000X. And of course, free shipping on all orders over $97. You want to be prepared. You don't want to get caught unprepared when your power goes out. It's going to happen eventually. It's just a question of whether you're in the dark for a few minutes, a few hours, or maybe even a few days or more. The Patriot Power Generator 2000X, worth its weight in gold. It's now got double the capacity, and it'll keep your big appliances running, including your fridge, which is full of food that just keeps getting more and more expensive. It's got 12 outlets, including four AC, plus two USB-C outlets that can charge your phone 20 times faster than normal. So visit 4patriots.com slash martini to get your Patriot Power Generator 2000X with the free solar panel included. Plus get free shipping on orders over $97. Save more and get peace of mind now by going to the number 4patriots.com slash martini. That's 4patriots.com slash martini. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this is uh, crazy in, in a couple different ways. Of course, the border is a total mess. We talked about it earlier in the week with Kamala Harris saying it's secure because we would like it to be secure. That's some that's some wishful thinking. Uh, she also then you know stumbled into muttering something about pathway to citizenship, which really doesn't impact the crisis at the border and the open border policies of this administration, which they telegraphed even before Election Day 2020. So... You know, we're talking about two million people illegally crossing the border that are actually encountered. Now, you also have about 800,000 or more people who evaded detection. So you're really talking about closer to three million at this point. Uh, The ones that are apprehended are taken by this administration by bus or by plane or by train uh, to all different parts of the country. And you hear nary a peep from the mainstream media about all this. Uh, But when the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, starts busing some of these illegals to Washington, D.C. or New York City, all of a sudden, Mayor Adams in New York City, Mayor Bowser in D.C., oh, this is a humanitarian disaster. And the media is talking about how cruel these governors are uh, to be uh, sending uh, these people and using them as political props. And now the latest incident, of course, is Ron DeSantis sending a couple of plane loads of illegals, 50, I believe, in total to Martha's Vineyard uh, to make a point. And so, Jim, now, of course, uh, the, the apoplexy is in full rage. Uh, today on CNN, uh, John Berman had Ken Burns on to talk about his new documentary on the Holocaust. And so uh, immediately he decided to not compare these two, but really compare these two. We woke up to the news this morning that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida sent two plane loads of migrants uh, to Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts, including kids and whatnot. And I'm not saying this is not a one for one. This is not a parallel here in any way. But it does address some of the same themes that are part of this documentary. Well, it's the abstraction of human life. It's basically saying that you can use a human life that is as valuable as yours or mine or Lynn's and to put it in a position of becoming a political pawn in somebody's authoritarian game. This is the uh, coming straight out of the authoritarian playbook. So, Jim, uh, you know, less than 24 hours here, we're already comparing uh, putting some migrants in blue areas of the country uh, to the Holocaust here. But uh, what do you make of, um, of the left freaking out over a couple of incidents as opposed to what the Biden administration is doing every single day all over the country? You know, sometimes there are issues where when you're feeling sober, when you're feeling fair minded, you could look at it and say, "Okay, Democrats have a point here or "Eh, okay, maybe the Republican narrative or right of center narrative on this sort of thing is uh, one sided or doesn't eclipse it or or oversimplifies things. This is not one of those issues. (laughs) This is one in which we've been screaming about an insecure border and far too many illegal immigrants getting into the country and far too many illegal immigrants staying in the country. And all of this being remarkably unfair to legal immigrants and creating this giant disincentive to obeying the law. We've been talking about this for decades now, right? And, you know, the the perception has been through much of the country. You know, you'd point out that this is illegal and people would just, you know, a lot of, I think, uh, either not so smart or just plain old disingenuous commentators would just turn around and quote the poem of the Statue of Liberty. And this idea that like, well, immigration is great. You know, why why do you, you, first of all, they blew as much as they can to blur the line between uh, legal immigration and illegal immigration. And they accuse you of being xenophobic and they accuse you of, uh, you know, being a bad person and hating them and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and they never really want to address the pressure on border communities of what it's like when you have lots of people coming across the border, ending up there, and they end up in you know your ERs, and if they stick around, they have, a, you, they have kids who need to go to school. They have all this, you know, obviously there are some crime issues that come along with some of them. And my colleague, Dan McLaughlin, summarized the dynamic here really clearly. He says, immigrants are good. Even though, even most illegal immigrants are good, even though we rightly deplore their long break. Now, maybe you want to disagree with that. And look, we don't, you know, I think everybody agrees. We don't want gang members coming through. We don't want MS-13. We don't want drug dealers. We don't want uh, rapists, murderers, child abusers, all that kind of, we don't, anybody with that? No, we don't want you coming through. But many things that are, anyway, Dan continues, many things that are good in moderation or good when you plan ahead for them are not so good when their timing and volume are out of proportion. Now, for a long time, folks on the right made these arguments pointing to the experiences of communities in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California. And the general consensus was, ah, you're racist, you're xenophobic. So the moment you start seeing illegal immigrants coming by the bus load or plane load to New York City, Washington, D.C., and now Martha's Vineyard, all of a sudden, people on the left are screaming, this is ridiculous. Oh, my God, how can you do this? You're, you're straining our systems. We were never designed to handle it. Well, what you're experiencing right now in New York and Washington, D.C. and Martha's Vineyard is exactly what all these border communities have been dealing with for years and even decades. Try a little bit of empathy. Try to see things. from Now you are feeling what they have been feeling for a very long time. And that's why they've been insisting this is a crisis. It's always having an open border and or amnesty is very easy to have. When you live in a comfortable part of New York City or Washington, D.C. or some northern city where you're not seeing the consequences day after day, an enormous number of the people who are loudest about the need for amnesty don't interact with illegal immigrants. People who deal with them, Ill illegal immigrants all the time say, you know what, I want a secure border. I want our country to be able to control who enters and who does not. I want people to follow the appropriate process. I want them tested for COVID. That, that used to be really important in this country. Now it's like, yeah, never mind. Um, it is a ludicrous uh, policy here, and you're seeing the reaction of the left, which is crazy, which is why this ended up being our crazy martini today. The hypocrisy on this is absolutely insane. And of course, uh, you know, they'll accuse the right of, of racism here. But anytime they really get frothed up on the left, uh, who's going to pick our lettuce and clean our houses? Consuela. Yes. My pills. Exactly. So the more they talk about it, the more they expose their uh, their true uh, selves on these things. All right, Jim, uh, we meant to do this yesterday, but I forgot, uh, which is uh, a shame on me because it's a significant passing and a uh, champagne toast for us here on the three martini lunch. But a couple of days ago, Ken Starr passed away at the age of 76. He apparently suffered some complications following surgery in Texas, uh, and then passed away. Uh, he is, of course, best known for being the independent counsel, originally for Whitewater, then FBI Filegate, the death of Vince Foster, and ultimately became most famous for investigating the president's affair with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, he became absolutely demonized by the left, even though Clinton was the one, obviously, whose behavior put the country in a moment of national peril and ultimately led to uh, four uh, impeachment charges, uh, two charges on which he was actually impeached. Uh, one was perjury. One was obstruction of justice. He was ultimately acquitted on both charges in the Senate. 
Uh, later, he was uh, the head of the Pepperdine University Law School. He was uh, uh, president of Baylor University, had to resign there. I don't know a lot about that story, but uh, there was a lot of, of uh, controversy over his handling of uh, sexual assaults on campus. But nonetheless, uh, Ken Starr, who was also, I should point out, Jim, a federal judge at age 37, appointed by President Reagan to the D.C. Circuit, no less, uh, and then later Solicitor General of uh, the United States for uh, the four years of the Bush administration. And in fact, Jim, get this, from Wikipedia, this will make you cringe from a historical perspective. (laughs) In 1990, Starr was the leading candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court nomination after William Brennan's retirement. He encountered strong resistance from the Department of Justice leadership, which feared Starr might not be as reliably conservative as a Supreme Court justice as they'd like. President Bush then nominated David Souter instead of Starr. Jim, just think how different our history could be if Bush had gone with his first instincts. You know, when we did the Q&A with uh, listeners, one of the questions was, what historical moment would you alter for all the dominoes that would follow? That would make a very strong candidate for uh, how history could have changed and I think turned out for the better. Um, look, I, I can't speak to the the Baylor experience. It definitely was not flattering and did not look like he had done a good job on a really important issue. But where he what, you know, as soon as you hear the news that he passed, you're transported back to 1998 and 1999. And Ken Starr, for about a year or two, was just about one of the most hated men in America because he had this crazy radical view that the president should be expected to obey the law, and that when the president does not obey the law, the president must be held accountable. That, you know, you know, by the way, everybody switched positions on this, you know, depending on who's the president and who's out of power. Um, but this, I, I, I'd like to think, that, you know, um, when you talk about, you know, they talk about somebody who has addiction problem, they stage an intervention. I think it was the, uh, the old show, How I Met Your Mother, or turned into this running gag that whenever anyone had some sort of annoying habit or trait, they would stage an intervention as if it was, you know, intervening for alcoholism or something. I'd really like to stage an intervention on the Democratic Party. And I'd really like to find a whole bunch of Democrats who were around there in 1998. Now I realize it's a long time ago. Greg, I don't know about you. I feel like it wasn't that long ago. I'm at that, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. The millennium was a few years ago in my head. Right. Um, yes. But the, this idea of like, I want to go back to Democrats, progressive Democrats. I want to play that video of James Carville saying in response to Paula Jones' accusations, you know, if you drag a $5 bill through a trailer park, you never know what you're going to find, right? The Democrats behaved abhorrently. They behaved abominably. And they stood up for what was effectively sexual harassment in the case of Paula Jones. And in the case of Monica Lewinsky, it was a consensual affair, but I don't think you have to be uh, a Bible-thumping prude to say, you know, the president of the United States should not be playing games uh, and having an affair with a White House intern. And he also should not be turning to all of his friends to help find her a job. This is not what we elect a president to do. You know, the dynamics of the Clinton marriage are up to them. Uh, you know, everybody knows marriages go through rough patches, etc. I don't know. Had Bill Clinton been having an affair with a grown woman his own age, his own age Maybe the country might have, he might have deserved the enormous amount of slack that the, or he, he would have been more deserving of the enormous amount of slack that the country left him. Uh, but he didn't. And he demonstrated a terrible judgment. And for about two years, the Democratic Party pretended to believe, or maybe they genuinely believed, that perjury was not a big deal. Perjury didn't count if it was about sex. A gentleman always lies about sex. 
and that it's nobody's business but their own. And that really, in some cases, some people argued Bill Clinton did nothing wrong. Now, I can't prove it, but I have a sneaking suspicion that a whole bunch of men were paying attention in that during that experience. And that when we heard the horror stories of Me Too, the Charlie Roses, the Matt Lowers, uh, maybe you could argue that, you know, Weinstein was always a, a, a monster. But the idea that a whole bunch of guys looked at it and said, huh, well, if you're important enough, you can get away with this. If you are powerful enough and enough people like you, you can treat your women employees however you like, and people will rush to defend you because you're that important. I'm not saying that Bill Clinton caused the Me Too uh, behavior that led to that backlash and led to that movement. I'm just kind of observing, I think the country was paying attention and a whole bunch of people learned really terrible lessons from that. Not just the fact the sheer number of like, this, you know, for about a year and a half, stains on blue dresses, presidential knee pads and references to oral sex were all over the news and not what you wanted to hear. And oh, by the way, I probably should have warned listeners before I said that. But anyway, now you know what it was like in 1998 and 1999 America. Yeah, no doubt about it. And uh, yeah, the, the feminists sat on their hands. Uh, you know, the economy was good and he defended Roe v. Wade. That's all they cared about. They couldn't care less about how he treated Monica Lewinsky or whether he had broken the law. It was unbelievable. But I, I will give credit here, Jim. Speaking of Monica Lewinsky, uh, she tweeted about this. And I think it's a lesson for how people should tweet. She's not a fan of Ken Starr, obviously. She didn't think she was treated well. But here's her tweet. As I'm sure many can understand... My thoughts about Ken Starr bring up complicated feelings, but of more importance is that I imagine it's a painful loss for those who love him. End of statement. Given the vitriol we see whenever a famous person with any sort of political bent dies, the queen being the most recent one and people finding things to hate about her, uh, you know, this is kind of a masterclass in even if you don't like this person, there's a way to be dignified in how you respond to something like this. I was going to say that was an exceptionally classy response from Monica Lewinsky. And she doesn't tweet often. She doesn't write often. I'm glad that she's gone on to have what seems like a, a reasonably happy and successful life and that she's not, you know, unfortunately, this is, this is going to follow her around for the rest of her life. But at some point, we should all be allowed to be more than our, you know, biggest mistake or worst judgment or, uh, you know, the, the worst thing we've ever done. People are multifaceted. We contain legions. We contain all kinds of our, our house has many men. Our mansion has many houses. It's the uh, it's West Virginia where a house has many mansions. <laughs> yeah, so good for her, and um, hopefully, you know, this people look at that and say, "Oh, okay, I don't have to immediately dance on the grave of somebody I didn't like." I can say, "Okay, we had our disagreements, but uh, they have gone to their maker now, and we will all end up in the same place." So, good for you, Monica Lewinsky and uh, Ken Starr. You tried to stand up for what was right in very difficult circumstances. And I hope he's remembered for that. Absolutely. Jim, uh, very well said. And uh, we will convene on Friday, our final one for the week. See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very, very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They help us out a lot. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Remember Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday. And please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Alfredo Ortiz of Job Creators Network joins me to explain how Biden policies are devastating small businesses and American families. I'm Sarah Carter. 
On the latest Sarah Carter show, Ortiz will also explain the messaging that will lead to big Republican wins this year. I'll also discuss Vice President Harris lying about the border and what the FBI is really doing in its investigation of President Trump. Join me, follow the Sarah Carter show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Todd Herman, host of The Todd Herman Show. You might have heard me on Rush Limbaugh's show. I was a regular fill-in for about eight years. I now do a show out of the high mountains of free America because, you know, I got exiled from Seattle. Google Gemini correctly predicts the present day. Mind control matrix. The internet, television, even our phones wouldn't just be distractions, but tools used to manipulate the masses and suppress critical thinking. I said that correctly. Check out The Todd Herman Show every day on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.